We've got just a couple of page turns left in the book of 1 Corinthians. A roadmap for raw believers. Paul's laying out instructions, taking brand new believers in Christ, first generation Christians, to mature followers and leaders in Christ's church. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, as always, we pray for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to understand this passage. We want to understand how um, it was originally written to this church in Corinth, but how it is also written for us, for our benefit and instruction today. We want to make sure we, we get both parts of that. We want to understand what it meant in its original context, and we also want to understand what it means for us today and how to best apply it. So we ask for your help. And uh, Father, we, we want to, to learn all we can from your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a particular scene that has been played out in many science fiction fantasy stories, and it usually goes something like this. There are some space travelers that they go to a new planet, and they land on the planet, and they, the ramp or the ladder or the hatch or whatever it opens and extends and, and lowers, and the crew kind of cautiously and, and tentatively take a few steps onto the planet's surface, and, and they're, they're somewhat in a heightened state of awareness, but then after a while they begin to relax a little bit and look around and and wouldn't you know it, one of the, the techs takes a reading and, and the air is breathable. So they, they take their helmets off and they, be, they become a little more relaxed and they start to set up camp and maybe take some water and soil samples and set up some radio equipment and everything seems to be going okay. But at some point, something happens. Maybe one of the, the crew members notices something they put down uh, is in a different place, or maybe something or someone is missing and they, they can't find them. Uh, perhaps they're walking around and they, they see some strange footprints, or they see something move very quickly behind a rock. And it's at that point where they turn to the rest of the crew and say, we are not alone. And when they say that line, what they're doing is they're giving a warning. They're, they're putting the rest of the crew on alert that, that there may be someone or something out there besides themselves. Now, usually when this line is spoken, it's rather unnerving. It's kind of a turning point in the story because all of a sudden there's this threat of, of some kind of alien or monster. But in the church, it's completely the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 12... Paul tells the church, you are not alone. And instead of being unnerving, it's actually something that they are to rejoice over. He's telling them they are not alone. They are united to Christ. And because of their union with Christ, they are subsequently united to one another. They are all members of Christ's body, the church. Jesus has placed us together. Jesus has assigned each one of us a spiritual gift. Jesus has, has placed the parts of the body in the position that they are at. And Jesus knows what he's doing. This passage is all about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. 
we are not alone. And that is a good thing. So we're going to understand this passage. We want to, to be sure we see what Paul is telling them. We, we are going to define a couple of more spiritual gifts. There's another list at the end of this passage. And then we're going to take some very practical action steps in regard to discerning spiritual gifts and exercising them in Christ's church. So let's read this. This is chapter 12, starting at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, there are, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Paul begins this passage with a fairly straightforward verse. In verse 12, um, For just as one body, uh, the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one so it is with Christ it's pretty straightforward he's introducing a body illustration it's a metaphor and he's going to run with this illustration throughout the rest of the passage we have different body parts we have different functions so it is with the church verse 13 for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body now, please note that that does not say, for some of you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or, for within the body, some of you received a Holy Spirit baptism. It doesn't say that. It says, we were all baptized. So whatever Paul is talking about in this verse, it has something to do with something that is common to every single believer in Christ not just 
some believers. The, the modern charismatic movement promotes something that they call a baptism of the Holy Spirit or a Holy Spirit baptism. And they would suggest that those who receive such a baptism can be identified by their ability to speak in tongues, which we have not discussed yet. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 14. Now, this teaching is problematic on several different levels, but it should be obvious from reading this verse and in this passage that it cannot possibly be teaching that there are some believers that receive a secondary baptism that gives them increased Holy Spirit power and and, and abilities that other believers don't have. This verse is teaching that every single believer receives being baptized into the body. So division is is the opposite of what Paul's talking about. Those those that believe in this kind of two-tiered or two groupings would would most likely protest and would say, oh, no, 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 we're not trying to to promote division within the body. It's inevitable. As soon as you say, we have something that all other Christians don't have, and and, and, and you, you don't have it, but we do, and, and we're united, even though we're two different groups. Immediately you've promoted division, and that's not what's going on here. In fact, the entire passage is about the unity that believers share in Christ. So it can't be possibly teaching uh, something that divides. Uh, in fact, the Bible uses baptism in a way to show unity that we have with uh, one another, and, and primarily with Christ, it's easy to see in a place like Romans 6. We looked at this in the baptism class a couple weeks ago. Romans 6, 3-5 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in, his, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in Romans 6, baptism is kind of a shorthand way of talking about the union we have with Christ, and that's the way it's being used here in this verse too. How are we united with Christ? And how are we, how do we receive, how do the benefits of Christ's redemptive work apply to us? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. This verse is teaching that believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are united to Christ and subsequently to the other members of his body, the church. He says, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. So all people, regardless of their ethnicity or their background or their race or culture or socioeconomic status or any other demographic point you want to throw out there, all of us are united to Christ in the same way and are made a, a part of the same body that is his church. And then that last phrase, all were made to drink of the Holy Spirit. This is just another way of emphasizing the unity that all believers share through the power of the Holy Spirit, being united to Christ and united to one another. We do not literally drink the Holy Spirit, not even in the Lord's Supper. That's not something we do. So it's a way to show emphasis and talk about the unity. Believers are really and truly filled with the Holy Spirit when they are effectually called by the power of the Spirit through God's Word. All parts needed, 14 through 16. Paul gives two physical body examples of a foot and an ear. And the idea is that the hand might be perceived as more important than the, than the foot. 
Now, or an eye might be perceived as, as more important than an ear. And I think we kind of get this. I mean, if we were backed into a corner and said, would you rather lose an ear or an eye? We'd, we'd probably pick the ear. I, I get that. But the point is this. Paul's saying, look, for those who appear to have a, a gift or, or be a part of the body that's not quite as important or not quite as prominent, let them not think that they're unimportant or unnecessary. And then verse 17 confirms that understanding by the, the foot, hand, ear, eye examples. If every part were an eye, the body would be unable to hear. If every part were an ear, the body would be unable to smell. I think we get that. If part of the body is removed, then it's not going to function the way God intended it to. Something's going to be missing. Every part is important. So also with the church. Verse 18, as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. God has assigned each one of us a place in the body of Christ. And I hope we all agree that God knows what he's doing. Verse 19, summarizing his point in 14 through 18, if all were a single member, where would the body be? If all were a single member. So if the whole body was just composed of a bunch of eyes, or if the whole body was just a bunch of hands sticking out, that actually would be unnerving. That would seem like a sci-fi alien or monster. Uh, that's not how it works, and it's not how it works in the church. If everyone was a clone of, of everyone else, and if we just had a bunch of hands, everybody doing the exact same thing, that would be rather unnerving, and it would not function as God intended it to. Verse 21, the eye or the head cannot say to the other, other body parts, I have no need of you. So the first part was those that were seemingly less important saying, well, I guess, I guess I'm not that important because I'm not a head or an eye or a hand. Now it's turned around. Now he's saying, watch out because those are on top. Don't think that you can get along without the rest of the body parts. And we have to ask this question, what does it mean on the top? Because notice eye and head, they are both up here. They're both near the top. That's what Paul's getting at. In what manner are some parts of the body, and by illustration he means members of the church, in what manner are they on the top? And I would have to say in any way that a body part might be viewed as being on top is what he has in mind. It could be some high-profile spiritual gift. Um, it could be if they were higher up on the socioeconomic ladder. It could be if they, they claimed Jewish background, which was extremely important in the early church. After all, Paul just did mention Jew and Gentile, slave or free. We just had chapter 11 with all those abuses of the Lord's Supper between those that were higher up on the socioeconomic ladder and those who were lower. So in any way that, that one part of the body might consider themselves being on the top, Paul said, that, that's what I've got in mind. Those on top cannot look at the rest of the body and say, I have no need of you. It doesn't work. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And I think what we, we understand what he has in mind here. There, there are parts of the body that, that aren't visible, that aren't quite as high profile like a hand that seems to be able to do everything. We think about our internal organs. 
They're not very strong at all. In fact, they're very weak. That's why they're protective. God put them inside a rib cage on the inside so they can't just be bumped or, or, or hit or something like that. So yeah, they're really weak. They don't have any bone structure inside. They're kind of pliable and bendy and made out of flesh and muscle. But if you remove one of those internal organs, see how long the body continues to function as it was designed to function. Not long. In fact, it's not going to work at all. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 23 and 24, same, same point, but from a slightly different angle. The, the parts of our body we think as less honorable bestow the greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So he seems to be talking about how we clothe our bodies. Once again, the high-profile, uh, prominent body parts like our head and our eyes and our hands, they don't get covered at all. They're just out there on their own. But we cover other parts. And then, of course, our unpresentable or our private parts, they kind of get double covered sometimes when we go out in public. They're all covered up. So that seems to be what he's saying. He's saying, look, even, even the ones that you think aren't that important, they get treated differently than the ones that seem to be high profile. Verse 24 and 25, God has so composed the body. He has arranged the members so that the members have the same care for one another. This diversity of spiritual giftedness should not contribute to division within the body, but to care for the body. He's commanding them to have the same care for one another, regardless of who they are or what their gifts are. No division based on perceived importance or unimportance. And then we get to verse 26. This is the um, we're all in it together verse. This says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is not something that is forced. This is not something that as members of Christ's body, we come in and say, well, I guess we all have to, to mourn with each other, and I guess we all have to rejoice with each other, but on the inside, we're not really caring. It's not like when something bad is happening, we, we kind of give a fake, oh yeah, I'm so sorry, but then inwardly think, better you than me. And it's not when something's rejoicing, we, we put on a smile and say, oh, that's great. And we kind of look around and think, well, why does all the good stuff always happen to them? That, that's, that's not what he has in mind. He's not saying outwardly, make sure you do all these things. This is something that happens organically. This is something that happens naturally. This is something that we desire as members of the same body. This is something that naturally occurs when we have love for other members of Christ's body. We recognize this teaching. It flows from within. It's something that's very real. This shared concern and rejoicing. And it's not going to happen if if we try to retain that, that worldliness that was so prevalent in the Church of Corinth, if we try to maintain a, a worldly sense of hierarchy and, and posturing and always trying to keep an eye out for others or, or being critical of, of others that are, that are better at things than we are, then, then you're not going to have this type of genuine care and, and sharing with one another in the body. It only comes if we leave that kind of luggage behind. The church is the body of Christ. Verse 27. No more illustrations. I'm coming out and directly telling you. You are the body of Christ and individual members of it. This is his way of saying, look, 
in case you missed it, everything I've been talking about, I'm actually talking about you, the church. And I'm not going to give any more hand and foot and eye illustrations. I'm going to start naming individual parts of the church body. And he does. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So the first thing that stands out in that list, in addition to be another, in addition to it being another New Testament gift list, is that they're ordered. You can see that first, second, third, and some people have tried to explain it away and said, "Oh, that doesn't mean anything." Well, it, it does mean something, and we need to figure out what it means. Is he ranking them in order of importance, which would seem to counteract everything he's been saying in the rest of the passage? Are they in terms of authority? Are they in terms of order of appearance after Pentecost? What, what does this ranking have to do with? From a study of the wider immediate context, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is, is ranking them, and he's ranking them in order of, in terms of how they build up the church. How something and, and what part it plays in building up and establishing the church. How profitable it is. Later in chapter 14, verse 5, Paul will say that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. And there's a couple different comments embedded in the, in the context around here. He seems to be focusing in on building the church up. So when we see first, second, third, look at what he's talking about. Apostles, prophets, teachers. That makes sense. Gifts of miracle working and gifts of healing are great. We're all for miracles. We're, we're all for healing. But those things by themselves cannot establish or build up a church. If, if someone is performing a miracle, if someone uh, heals someone else miraculously, apart from the word, so there's no word accompanying that miracle or that healing, there, there's no word explaining the meaning, there's no word pointing to the, the ultimate miracle worker and the power of the Holy Spirit, then all you have is the miracle and or just the healing, which again is a good thing, but it doesn't build up the church. So Paul's thinking in terms of how a gift builds up the church, and that's how he's ranking them. Apostles, prophets, teachers, they all have to do with the ministry of the word revealing, proclaiming, declaring, explaining, teaching the Word of God. And without the Word of God, the church cannot be built up. Well, let's take a look at this list. Apostles, we've looked at this before to review. An apostle is a person who has been selected and directly commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to complete the foundational work of the church in word and deed with full representational authority from Jesus and the ability to perform signs and miracles. Paul was an apostle. Their authority, the, the apostolic authority, unlike the teachers and elders and pastors and leaders of the church, the apostolic authority was not limited to one local church. All the rest of those offices and gifts, they were limited to one church. But Paul was an apostle. And you remember, as an apostle, he could just kind of pick up and go to any one of these churches and speak authoritatively with representational authority from Christ. And, and so that was what was needed for that time. 
Uh, prophets, we talked about this extensively last week. If you missed it, we've probably spent 20 or 25 minutes talking about prophets and prophecy. Um, prophets are messengers of God. They receive and proclaim, sometimes writing down the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're distinct from the apostles, but they share in that common task of laying down that revelatory message once and for all foundation of the early New Covenant Church. So after the apostles and the prophets did that foundational work, they're no longer needed. And that's why the apostles and the prophets have ceased with the end of the apostolic age. There are no apostles or prophets today because we don't need to lay a foundation again. It's been laid. There is no new revelation from God. It's been given. Teachers. They provided instruction to the church and knowledge of the truth of God. And because teaching engages the heart and the head, uh, it's sometimes used interchangeably with preaching. And we see the Bible doing this. For example, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then comes the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, was he teaching or was he preaching? And the answer is, yes, he was doing both. He was teaching and preaching. Are there nuanced differences uh, that we teach to the church today and that, that seminaries teach the difference between teaching and preaching? Sure, yes. But in scripture, um, they're often equated and used interchangeably. If you are preaching faithfully, from scripture, then you're also going to be teaching. Miracle. A miracle is an extraordinary, observable manifestation of God's power, which elicits awe from witnesses and confirms God's word. That's what a miracle is. Let's unpack that a little bit. Extraordinary, which means it's not regular. It's not something that happens all the time. It's not something that should be expected by the church. Observable, which means people can see the miraculous event. It's not a private or secret miracle. It's observable. It confirms God's word. I think we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago, miracles were never just done for display only or for, a, for an outward show of power or just to impress somebody or something like that, they always point to the validity of God's word, the validity of the messenger bringing God's word. Um, probably one of the easiest examples to, to show this from scripture is the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then immediately afterwards, he raises Lazarus to life. That's a miracle that points back and confirms the word of God very clearly. Gifts of healing. We talked a little bit about this last week. It's a miraculous gift. And by the way, working of miracles and gifts of healing in terms of a regular ministry have also ceased with the apostolic age. That does not mean that God... Does no, that does not mean that God no longer performs miracles or that there are no longer miraculous healings. There are. What we're saying is, when it's listed as a gift, 
it's part of a regular ministry that someone was doing. It didn't mean that they could heal everybody all the time in, in every instance, but it was part of a regular ministry. That has ceased for today. So we could say it this way. Um, God has not stopped doing miracles, but there are no more miracle workers. And in the same way, there are still miraculous healings, but there are no healers walking around. Right? It, do you see the difference? I hope so. It's not part of a regular ministry, but it still does happen, and we praise God for it. It's usually in response to ongoing, faithful, fervent prayer. That's how God usually performs miracles of healing today. Uh, helping. This is the ability to serve other members of the body who are weaker or are suffering. This includes practical service, assistance, encouragement to other believers who are in need. This is, we can see this manifested in all, all kinds of ways today. This is a continuing gift. Administrating. The original meaning of this word refers to the piloting of a ship or the steering of a, of a, uh, of a vessel, so a pilot or a helmsman. And in this term, in, in this context, it, it means to provide wise leadership and counsel when steering the church. It's very similar to leads, which is a, another gift in the New Testament spiritual gift list in Romans chapter 12, which means to rule, direct, or govern, govern with an element of caring and protecting. I mean, th- this is what you want to look for when you're looking for leaders in Christ's church. You're looking for those that can lead and direct the church with wise counsel and discernment and decision-making, along with a desire to protect the church, both spiritually and otherwise. Various kinds of tongues. Once again, we're going to wait for chapter 14. Verse 29 and 31. These are all rhetorical questions. You see them firing off one after another. They're all designed to be answered in the negative No, not everyone is an apostle. No, not everyone is a prophet or a teacher, etc., etc. Paul's point is there are a variety of spiritual gifts, but don't think, any one individual, that you're going to have them all. In the same way, we can just go right back to the physical body illustration. Is the body composed entirely of hands? No. No, it's going to be made up of different gifts. And and, and his point also is that all gifts are needed. There's there's no room for boasting. There's no room for uh, being puffed up. And there's also no room for feeling discouraged if you don't have the gift that you see someone else has. And then he closes by saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Other translations say greater gifts. It could also be translated as better gifts. And once again, we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean by greater and better? He just spent the entire passage saying that all are important. And once again, we have to talk about word-based gifts that are necessary to establish and build up the church. The New Covenant Church, or any church today, can be established on the word and healings. It can be established on the word but it cannot be established on healings alone. You just can't establish a church of God without the word of God. And so that's what he's referring to by the the higher or the greater or the better gifts. And that's what he's going to continue to to describe in 14 when we get there.
Believers are not alone. Let's summarize this passage. Paul is telling the Corinthian church that there is intentional unity and diversity among the members of Christ's body. Believers are united through their common faith and spiritual union with Jesus. Yet there is diversity due to the varying spiritual gifts that each believer has been given. Believers should not be disappointed with the particular gift God has given them, nor should they become proud and puffed up because God has given them a particular gift. God has perfectly appointed to each person spiritual gifts for the building up and care of his church. That's the thrust of this passage. It's all about spiritual gifts. I want to draw out four application points from this passage And the first one is this, believers are never alone. That is the reoccurring theme throughout this passage. If we were to run our eye over this this last half of chapter 12, we'd see it all over the place. All our members of the body, though many, are one body, all baptized into one body. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. No division in the body, you are the body of Christ is just all over a place. You are not alone. This idea of a lone ranger Christian existing just does not exist in the Bible. If we have this idea that we're going to be this kind of lone ranger, nomad, um, riding our motorcycle through the desert with nothing but our bedroll on the back and just kind of doing our own thing. That's not of Christ. That's not how the body operates. We're not alone. We are together. We belong to the body of Christ. There is a reality show that's had a few seasons. It's been out for a while, and it's called Alone. And it's a survival show, and the whole idea is that they take Ten people, and they they just throw them down in the middle of the Canadian wilderness with nothing. They have no shelter, no food, no water, no clothing except what they're wearing. And they're allowed to take a few things like a knife or a fire starter or something like that. But other than that, they're on their own. And the idea is to survive as long as you can alone with no help. And I think one of the reasons that that show is is popular and attracts viewers is because it taps into something. It taps into that that fleshy, um, worldly desire for complete independence. It it taps into that, that desire to say, I can do it alone. I don't need any help. I don't need anybody else. I, I can do it all by myself. And of course, that's a sinful desire when it's spiritual. When we say, I don't need any help, God. I can do life by myself. I get that. Some people are into church. Maybe they need a crutch. Okay, I don't. I can do it by myself. I've gotten along just fine so far, and I can make it the rest of the way. I want to do it alone. And we get that. Now, of course, the... it breaks down because ultimately they're not alone. They all get, have radios and they just have to press a button and they have a rescue team. They have a medical team that come and gives them health checks up, checkups. And it's usually when someone's bragging about their training and how they're going to beat everybody else and they're going to be the last one, it's usually about that time where they just turn their foot on a rock and they break their ankle. 
or, or they eat something they shouldn't have to and they're, they're overcome with sickness and have to tap out. Or they're, they're chopping firewood and they just make a little bitty slip and they hack into their arm or their leg. And of course they're out. And even the ones that win, they eventually leave, right? And, and even, if they, even if they make it 100 days and say, well, I could be here forever. Well, you know what, though? You couldn't, could you? Because eventually you're going to get older and you're not going to be as strong. And every single one of us will die. Nobody can make it alone. And in fact, this is one of those things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us very early. It is kind of like square one when we are being effectually called. We come to the knowledge that we are in need of a Savior. That, that is one of the first things that God teaches us. He says, you can't make it on your, on your own. You, you're not going to survive this alone. You need Jesus Christ. You need a Savior if you're going to make it. You can't do it alone. So, so this attitude of wanting to be alone is, is one of the first things that we have to discard when we come to Christ. We are not alone. We need Christ and we need other believers. When God calls us, he, he reveals that. We're, we're not alone. We can't do it. You need Jesus Christ because he has the righteousness that you don't have. He's the only one with the power to forgive sin. He's the only one with the power to rescue you from the fires of hell for eternity. You can't beat that on your own. So we discard this idea that that we're alone. We're called to be in Christ, which means we're united to him and to one another. The Bible knows no believer. Go ahead, search through the scriptures. There is no believer that's presented as living a faithful spiritual life alone. They're always connected to other believers. We're always to be connected to a local assembly. In fact, if you are not part of the body of Christ, then you're not part of Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Someone might say, I thought it was by faith alone. Are you adding to the gospel? No, we're not adding to the gospel. Faith, or excuse me, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. What I'm saying is when Christ calls you through faith alone in Christ alone, he calls you to himself and to his body. He will not leave you alone. Those who have truly been called by Christ become a part of Christ's visible body. Those who have no interest in Christ's visible body are revealing that they've not been truly called because the Spirit of Christ does not cause believers to stay away from the body of Christ. I hope we make that connection. And and that's why one of our confessions says that. It says there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the church. And that's a summary of what we just talked about. The Bible does not know of anyone outside of Christ's church. And, and let's bring the body illustration back in for a moment, because that works quite well. Our tissue is living, and it's got blood running through it, and it's oxygenated, and it's, it's part of us and who we are. What happens when we cut a part of the body off from the rest of the body? It doesn't live very long. In the same way, when we are cut off from the body of Christ, we don't survive very long. So genuine believers are never alone. Number two... 
identifying spiritual gifts. And then we'll break this up into the rest of the application points. Here's some really good practical rubber meets the road types of takeaways from this passage. Identifying spiritual gifts. Accept reality and take an honest look in the mirror. When we're trying to identify our spiritual gifts, especially for the first time, or when we're a young believer, new believer, or or student, look for what you like to do, look for what you're good at, look for how God has used you effectively and fruitfully in the past, and look for how the other members of the body are affirming your service. Look for all four of those things, and then accept reality when they match and when they don't match. Uh, For example, someone might be thinking, you know what, I think I'm called to serve the church with with a music ministry. I think I want to be up there and play. Now, I haven't touched an instrument since fourth grade with the plastic recorder in class, but I would really like to serve. Probably not accepting reality. Or somebody who says, you know what, I'd really like to, to serve... I think God's calling me to the nursery, but just so you know, I don't, I'm not getting down on the floor and I don't like to play with little kids. Okay, that's, that's not a good fit. Accept reality. Don't serve there. Or I, I might be called to serve on the mission board, but just so you know, I don't do meetings. Okay, well then, don't even bother. That's not for you. On the other hand, if someone says, you know what, I like to, I like to do things, I like to be in my feet, and uh, I like to serve people, and I, I spent two years working as a barista, and, it's, and that maybe I should serve in the coffee area. Yes, excellent. Or somebody says, um, you know, I, I really like training up the next generation of believers, and, and uh, people have told me that I've got a, a good rapport and a knack with, with students, and uh, the students themselves are asking me to be a chaperone on their next event. Maybe I should explore helping out with the youth ministry. Yes, you're being affirmed by the other members. It's something you like to do, something you're good at. Look for those, for those questions, the answers to those questions, and then accept reality, whether it's a good fit or unrealistic. Number three, go all in, not minimally or reluctantly. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, in the original context, that verse was written to bond servants in the church. But we can apply that to all believers as they serve the Lord in his church. Whatever you're going to be doing, don't hold back. You are ultimately serving the Lord. So there's no need to pump the brakes or to restrain yourself. Go all in. Now that doesn't mean we have to constantly walk around with a smile glued to our face or or show up to every single event um, with this kind of hyper-exaggerated excitement that that we're supposed to make sure everybody sees. It it doesn't mean that. But it also doesn't mean that we, we show up to serve with kind of this, just tell me where I have to do, that type of attitude. I think we all have seen this work out when we go to, to just places that are not the church, but in the public. Have you ever gone to um, a, a restaurant or um, uh, dry cleaners or really any place where you have to interact with, with someone who's on staff or an employee and they have to work with, the, with the, the people coming in in the public? Do you know how you can tell 
that there are some people who really want to be there and, and like their job, and then you can tell where there's some people who don't really want to be there. God can tell too. God can tell. He can not only see it outwardly, but he can see it inwardly. He knows when we want to be there, and he knows where it's just kind of like a, oh, let's get this over with type of service. Serve the Lord with your whole heart. Not only is this how we are to serve, but it's also going to be the best way to figure out if that truly is a place where you want to serve. It's the only way to tell us if you're going all out. And it's the only way for other members to affirm your service. They need to see you with your, with your best. Number four, use and exercise your gifts under the direction and approval of church leadership. God put his officers in place for a reason. They're responsible for overseeing the church. This is one of the, the things, administrating. It's that helmsman or steersman or whatever, whatever that word uh, was talking about in that context, the pilot of a ship. Those that are overseeing the church are, are overseeing the church. That's their gift. They're, they're doing that. Every once in a while, uh, individual members of the body start acting on their own or they start to refuse to acknowledge church leadership um, they, they refuse to operate in the organizational structures that have been, been put in place in Christ's body, and it never turns out well. It almost always causes division. Uh, sometimes, uh, excuse me, it, it almost always causes a disruption. Sometimes it causes a division, and worst case scenario, it can cause destruction of a local church. It just seems to step up and I've seen it happen, and I'm sure you have too at different churches you've been a part of. It's not pretty. Yes, we are to use our gifts, but never as a rogue agent, never at the expense of harming the body or causing a disruption. It's always seeking the common good, always building up the body. Paul says we are not alone because God never intended us to be alone. And this is cause for rejoicing. God has so composed the body. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word instructing us on the body of Christ. Uh, this is one of those passages that is extremely practical. We all have a spiritual gift. We're all called to use them. Father, would you help us discern and then use our giftedness within your body for your glory for the building up of the church and for the common good. In Jesus' name, amen.